0: We're going to be reading this morning from Zechariah chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. If you're using a Pew Bible, it's page 794. Zechariah chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is written on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is written on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts. And it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones." This is God's Word. Amen. Well,
1: we come to this sixth of Zechariah's visions on this extraordinary night of 519 B.C. And as we 've already seen, uh, the prophet Zechariah is uh, preaching uh, to uh, god 's people uh, as he 's receiving these uh, visions from god that that uh, that night, and each of the the visions has a message to encourage uh, god 's people. they are uh, being called upon to rebuild the temple, and they've come back from exile. And there's all this opposition and difficulty that they're facing. And Haggai, another prophet at the time, and Zechariah are God's dynamic duo. And they are calling God's people to move forward, to take courage, uh, to rebuild the temple. And uh, Zechariah receives really the, the heart of his whole ministry, and after these eight visions he, he, there are some oracles and messages and preaching and there's a vision before these, these, these eight that took place a few months earlier. But right at the heart there's this one night, 519 B.C., when the prophet Zechariah uh, receives eight visions in one evening, which is pretty impressive by any, by any reckoning. And we've come to the sixth of these eight visions… And as I say, each of the, the visions is, uh, is under the, the rubric of a, of a message of hope and a call for a movement forward and encouragement and strength and all that. And then we come to this vision, which doesn't seem to be particularly positive. Uh, indeed, it is quite obviously about God's curse. So we need to think about that. How does that fit into the overall message of Zechariah? How does that fit into the overall message of the Bible? In what sense does God curse? And, well, to begin with, we need to make sure we understand the word curse. Uh, when we use the word "curse" today, we tend to think of it in terms of swearing or a, a curse word or an obscene language of some kind or other. and we know from uh, the rest of the Bible in New Testament Ephesians chapter four we 're told those of us who follow Jesus and are Christians are told that no corrupt or um, uh, um, degrading or um, rotting talk, no obscene talk, no swearing, no cursing should come out of our mouths. Instead, everything we say should be for the building up of each other so that those who hear what we say can receive grace. So, Christians, those who follow Jesus are not to use curse words. They're not to swear. They're not to have obscene or corrupt or rotting talk. Instead, our language is to be the language that is designed to build someone up and help them to follow God's purpose for their lives, to hear, therefore, grace and mercy and the gospel. Well, if that's the case, then obviously when we're looking at God cursing, it can't mean that God has suddenly lost his temper and got angry and cursed In that sort of way, the Bible is very clear that we're not to do that, so surely He doesn't do that. Uh, On the other hand, sometimes we use the word curse in a sort of uh, looser way as kind of um, trash talk. Um, When I play soccer with my son or play tennis with my son, he likes to trash talk me. Dad, you're so old. You know, he'll say, "You can't possibly get that." You're used. You he just he loves it. He thinks it's funny. And there's a there's a long like history of trash talk in uh, politics. One of one of, one of my favourites. Uh, uh, it's not polite, but uh, comes from Winston Churchill. The story goes famously that one time Winston Churchill was on the streets of London, and Winston, and Churchill, who of course. Uh, liked to drink alcohol, and one evening he was, uh, had had a few too many, perhaps, and a woman came up to him and said, Mr. Churchill, you are drunk. And Churchill famously replied, uh, Madam, you are ugly. Tomorrow, I will be sober, <laughs> which is definitely trash talk. Uh, and it was, uh, we, we, you know, in sports and politics, Disraeli, the 19th century politician, uh, had uh, Gladstone as his arch enemy. And Disraeli found Gladstone annoying because he viewed Gladstone as a little bit too moral for his own good and kind of looking down at other people and being moralistic and, and uh, too pure and that sort of thing. And Disraeli is said to have remarked about Gladstone that Gladstone, who he found annoying because he didn't have he, he? He was too moral. He he's, he said to have said of Gladstone that Gladstone did not have one single redeeming defect. Uh, and so that's that's trash talk, and we can use it about ourselves. Self-deprecation. Henry Kissinger has uh, said to have remarked that the the one good thing about being famous is that when you bore people at dinner parties, they think it's their fault which is definitely self-deprecation, a kind of self-trash talk. But that's, that's, that's not what this is about. The case I'm going to be making here is that when it says that God curses, what has described is God's declaration that the whole earth is under the curse of, uh, of the law, as the Apostle Paul would put it, under the curse of God's judgment. In other words, what God is saying is that He has a moral standard that is revealed in the Scriptures and that no one has kept it, and therefore we're under His curse. I think as we go through it, you'll see that this is what is being talked about. But of course, <laughs> you have to ask yourself, well, how does this fit into this theme of the prophet of hope? And what I, what, what I want you to do as we go through this is to hold in your mind like a, a possibility that not only is this passage actually filled with hope, it is in God's providence extraordinarily relevant to our global scene today I think of it there's this phrase that something is a black swan I don't know whether you heard that so in ancient times it used to be thought that black swans didn't exist so a black swan was something that was impossible but then it was discovered that actually black swans did exist in Australia and so a black swan is something you think is impossible but actually exists. You may think that a passage about God's curse, it's impossible that it's a message of hope, but I want you to at least have your mind open as we go through it that it is. And you say, well, why should we look at passages like this? Well, of course, the answer why we should look at passages like this is because these kind of passages are in the Bible. And if we together as a church or we as Christians only look at the sort of good bits in the Bible, you know, if we just do John 3 verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Fantastic, important passage in the Bible. But if we only ever look at that kind of thing, then of course we'll be open to the charge that we don't really take the Bible seriously. And non-Christians will say to us, you say you follow Jesus, but there's all this stuff in the Bible that is horrible. How can, you, how can you really say that the Bible is such a good book? And so we need to look at these things and understand them. And, 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 and not only do we need to look at it because it's in the Bible, we need to look at it because one of the most common questions that people have, and I've been asked this question so many times, and I'm sure you have as well. One of the, the most common questions that people have about God is, if you believe, you Christians, you believe in a God of love, how is it possible that he sends people to hell? How is it possible that there is judgment? How can that be a good thing? And we need to have an answer to that question, and this passage will help us with that. So, let's look at what is being said in this really extraordinary vision of a flying scroll. So, let's look, so, verse 1 of chapter 5, the prophet sees something. What does he see? Behold, he sees a flying scroll. Now, just pause your mind there. When, when we hear scroll, of course, we're thinking of um, a, a document that is unrolled in a, in a, in a, in a scroll like that. But what we need to understand is that books in the ancient world were shaped, were, were, were in scroll form. And so basically what he's seeing is a book, to, to translate, to, to put it into contemporary terms. What he sees is a book. That's important. And this book is Flying. Which is strange. Now remember, we're looking at apocalyptic literature. This part of the Bible is its genre, it's, the kind of writing it is is apocalyptic. And apocalyptic literature has these arresting, strange, startling images, like this one of a, of a flying book. And, but, but apocalyptic literature, though it has these arresting, startling images, Essentially, apocalyptic literature is designed to say the same thing as the rest of the Bible just in really strange ways. And the reason for that is is to give us, those of us who get hardened to hear, I've heard that before. It's the same old thing. It's to give us a a visual kickstart that we'll really hear what's being said. So when we look at this, we should have in our minds, the, the, again, the possibility, like the black swan, it sounds like it couldn't be true, but it could be. Hold it in your mind. That it could be. The possibility that what's being said here by this flying scroll is not only relevant and positive a message of hope, but, but is actually saying in a really unusual way the, the same thing that the rest of the Bible says. So here's this scroll or book that's flying, and he, uh, the angel, says to Zachariah, "What do you see?" And he says, "I see a flying scroll." And then he describes its size, its length is twenty cubits, and its width ten cubits. Now we don't know what a cubit is. In, we don't we don't measure things by cubits anymore. We measure them by feet and inches. So or if you're in Europe, by um, meters and centimeters. But if you a cubit is basically the length from the tip of your finger to your elbow, because in the ancient world they used that as a physical way to measure. And because that's what a cubit is, from your elbow to the tip of your fingers, exactly how many inches a cubit would be today is um, unknown, because obviously the length of from the tip of your fingers to your elbow, varies depending on how big you are as a person. But roughly speaking, it's about 18 inches, and so then roughly speaking, a um, uh, 20 cubits by 10 cubits is roughly speaking, about 30 feet by 15 feet. So, uh, so that's, that's big. This is a big book. Uh, and to give you a sense of scale, the average American bedroom by one of these dimensions uh, is about that size, and by another, about half that size. So it's narrower than the average American bedroom, but about the same length. So this is big, and it's flying. But not only is it big, the, the specifications of uh, the dimensions are deliberate, so, remember, we're in this context where they're being called, God's people being called to rebuild the temple, and in the temple there was a special, the most special area in the middle of the temple called the Holy of Holies, and the Holy of Holies had its own dimensions. The Holy of Holies was a cube, 20 cubits by 20 cubits, and this scroll… Well, We'll, I think as we go through it, you'll see that this is an accurate interpretation. This scroll is by one dimension the same size and another dimension half the size because what's being said is that this is the rolling out, remember this flying scroll, it's moving around, the rolling out of God's holiness by the one dimension of His law, the curse of the law, those who don't keep the law are under God's judgment, under His curse, that expression of the wholeness of God. And of course there's an, another side to the wholeness of God, for in the Holy of Holies there was the, the mercy seat where there was sacrifice for those for our sins, which is fulfilled of course in Christ's sacrifice. But this scroll, because it's twenty by ten, not twenty by twenty, isn't about the mercy piece it's about the, the law piece, the the, the curse piece. So that's the, the size of it and the, the, the symbolism of it. And then verse 3, he said to me, this is the curse. Um, this is God's curse. Now, interestingly enough, Alec Mateer, one of the great commentators, uh, says that the Hebrew for the word curse is often used in positive ways and the word itself is neutral. It means something like God's covenant commitment, and whether the word is neutral or positive or here, obviously, negative, curse, whether that's the right translation is dependent upon the context. So, what is being said here is this is God's moral standard, His commitment to who He is, and because, as we'll see, they have broken that standard, then it's a curse, So this is the curse that goes over the face of the whole land, the whole land or the whole earth. I think that's probably the right translation, the whole earth. This is God's global law that is now flying out from the temple. And what is it? Why is this? For, he says, uh, verse 3, for everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. So, this scroll, and again, remember it's apocalyptic literature. It's hard to picture it literally, but there's different like flashing images sending a message. So, this scroll has two sides, and the reason why it has two sides is because the scroll is the scroll of the law, and we know from Exodus chapter 32, verse 15, that there are two parts to the law, two sides to the law, the Ten Commandments. And the first of the half of the Ten Commandments, as Jesus summarizes it, those are all about loving God and honoring God and pleasing God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and self. And the, that's the summary of the first part of the Ten Commandments. And the summary of the second part of the Ten Commandments, according to Jesus, is love your neighbor as yourself. And that second half of the Ten Commandments are all about loving your neighbor, not stealing from your neighbor, not being envious of your neighbor, not lying to your neighbor. And so these two parts, two sides of the scroll, are the two parts of the Ten Commandments. The first, which is about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second half which is all about loving your neighbor. And they have broken the epitome of each part of those two Ten Commandments, the first five and the second five, the love your Lord your God part and the love your neighbor as yourself part. And so it is those shall be cleaned out according on one side who steal and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what's on the other side. So stealing, of course, is the ninth commandment. So it's the breaking of the loving your neighbor. If you steal from your neighbor what your neighbor owns, what your neighbor possesses, your neighbor's land, your neighbor's country, your neighbor's riches, you steal from your neighbor. You're not loving your neighbor. It's breaking the second side, the other, that side of the, of the law. And then the the first side, those who swear falsely, that's the third commandment. So, swear falsely there means often um, described as blasphemy or taking God's name in vain. It is not simply saying the name of God as a curse word. It is living in such a way that though you say you're a Christian, you're not actually living like a Christian. And so, the name that you have by saying you're a Christian, is denied by the way you live. You're taking God's name in vain. You're denying what it really means to be a follower of God because you're not living that way. So this scroll, this huge scroll that represents the holiness of God from the side of the law that is not not the mercy of God, but the holiness of God on the side of the law, is now flying out over the whole earth, and there are two sides to it. And those who have broken the one side and those who have broken the other side shall both be, puts it here, cleaned out. And Alec Matea, again, who's a very was a very gifted commentator, uh, makes the remark that this is deep with irony. That, that those who break God's law will be purified out, cleaned out, removed, and, and, and this is course, fulfilled in the New Testament teaching about uh, church discipline, excommunication, that there'll be within the community of God, there's an appropriate discipline that those who refuse to repent in the end will be cleaned out. God has a certain standard. He has a certain standard for His people. And And so, as Annette McTeer says, it's it's deep with irony here because the idea of cleaning, you're cleaning out those who um, uh, break God's law. And then verse 4, God says, I'll send it out over the whole earth and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. So both those sides uh, of the law being broken by these people. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. So what's being said there is that those, this thief and the, when, the one who swears falsely by his name that says, you know, I'm following God, but really doesn't live that way. And in fact is abusive and attacking on God's people. That, 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 that God will, they seem so safe, they're in the house. there's no hiding. It will enter into their house and consume it, break down their house. Now, remember that God has already said in the book of Zechariah that those who attack God's people had gone too far when they sent them into exile. So, chapter 1, verse 15, He said, I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. They're in their houses. Everything seems fine. For while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. God's saying this through his prophet that there's a huge massive scroll that's flying over the whole earth and it's going to enter into the house who those who seem at ease but pretend to be following God but really aren't, who take his name in vain, who steal and blaspheme and their houses though it seems so stable, it's going to enter in and destroy it. I, um, um, I'm not I'm not very good at uh, chess, I like to uh, occasionally play it. And I had a friend once that I was um, uh, uh, feeling like I really needed to get to know him and tell him about Jesus. And so he was very good at chess. And so our deal was that we would meet together once a week in a coffee shop, have coffee, and we would play chess because he liked chess. And in return, I tell him about Jesus. And um, he got the joy, because I'm not very good at chess, he got the joy of beating me at chess really well every single time. I don't think I ever beat him at chess. And I got to share Jesus with him. It was a great deal. And in chess, there is a particular word for a situation you can find yourself in and that word is the German word Zugzwang and what it means is you've been maneuvered into such a situation that the only move you can make will make things worse you're in a Zugzwang in a sense what God is saying about these thieves and those who've taken his name in vain is actually they're in Zugzwang There's no move they can make that will make things better. It's a warning, very, very serious warning. Now, of course, we've got to ask ourselves then, having looked at this curse of the law from this passage, whether this really represents the teaching of the Bible as a whole. And as soon as we we ask that question... Uh, We cast our minds back to, for instance, Genesis chapter 3 where God says that because we rebelled against Him, there is a curse on the earth. Uh, We cast our minds a little bit further forward in the Scriptures to the end of the book of Deuteronomy where Moses preaches to God's people that if they follow His covenant and keep His word, there is blessing, but if they do not follow His covenant and do not keep His word, there is a curse. And we go to the New Testament, and uh, we read about Jesus. We find that Jesus has on his lips words of warning and judgment. Uh, Jesus preaches about hell more than any other biblical figure. And then we go to the Apostle Paul, to the famous uh, book of Romans that he wrote, Romans chapter 3, where he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he says, In their mouths are bitterness, And cursings, meaning I think not simply that they swear, but that the curse has entered into their house, and it's produced a kind of bitterness. The end will be self-destructive because it's God's judgment. It's clearly biblical. But then we have to ask ourselves, as we asked at the beginning, whether it's reasonable. Is it reasonable to believe this? And as I said at the beginning, I've been asked so many times whether it's reasonable to believe that God is a God of love and a God of judgment. How can you possibly believe that? And my response to people who ask me that question is very simply, do you really want to live in a world where there is no ultimate judge? Do you really want to live in a world where the person who rapes and abuses children and seems to get away with it takes that to their deathbed? Do you really want to live in a world where there's no ultimate judgment for that? Is that really what you want? Do you really want to live in a world where Hitler, who committed suicide, having sent countless millions to the gas chambers, gets away with it? Is that really the world you want to live in? And, of course, the answer to that is no. No one wants to live in that kind of world. But once you admit that, then it's just a question of degree, isn't it? Who is under God's judgment? And who is not? And the biblical answer to that is that we are all under God's judgment. There is no one righteous, not even one. Because we have all broken God's law. If we haven't physically stolen, if we haven't physically killed, our hearts have wanted to do those things, as Jesus teaches. We have, we have hated. And while there certainly are degrees of evil, and mercifully most of us never do the horrendous things that I've indicated just a moment ago, we are all... We have all fallen short of God's holy law, and therefore we're all under God's judgment. The flying scroll is over the whole land. (laughs) Which brings us back to where we began, which is how on earth can this be a message of hope? And to answer that question, my friends, we just have to turn to the greatest theologian of the 20th century, Forrest Gump. In that amazing movie, there's a moment where Forrest Gump is with the love of his life, Jenny and they're walking past the house where Jenny grew up, where she was so abused by her own father. And they notice it, and they stop. And Jenny runs towards the house and starts picking up rocks, frozen at the house with increasing anger and shouting, breaking windows, one after one, after another, after another. And eventually she, she, she just collapses on the ground. And Forrest Gump, in his rather strange way of walking, comes up to her and just sits down next to her. And then there's a voiceover in Forrest Gump's words, which says, Sometimes I guess there just aren't enough rocks. But there is a scroll, and it is huge, and it is flying over the whole earth. And for those who have experienced victimization and abuse, that is a message of hope. That one day the God of the whole earth will judge. And those who attack and rape and kill, they will not get away with it. I think it must be a terrible thing to be a world leader and have sitting on your conscience the deaths of hundreds of thousands. Be warned. But of course, as the Bible says, we're all sinners, and the curse is over the whole earth. But then, 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 the Apostle Paul teaches that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for, as he quotes, anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed, and Jesus, purely good, utterly righteous died in your place O cursed ones that you might be blessed and filled with his love and have his blood wash you clean not out of judgment but out of mercy and grace and favor and eternal peace and joy because of what He did and that can be yours, whatever you've done but to receive it you must come to Him. Oh my friend, don't delay. There is a curse, it is hovering, flying over the whole earth. but if you believe you will not be cursed you will be blessed let's pray together oh lord god our hearts are heavy with all the global uh, news And we're grateful to be able to turn to your word and be reminded that you are the judge of the whole earth. Lord, that is both encouraging and uh, terrifying, which is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper which is why we sing of your grace and mercy, which is why this morning again there is good news on offer for those who will believe. Oh Lord, would you fill us with your blessing? Would you redeem us for the first time or once again? Would you cause us to sing with joy that we have as a church? A gospel for the whole earth. And would you protect your vulnerable people, we pray. O God of the whole earth. In Jesus' name,
0: amen.